Luke says, and when it was day, Jesus departed and went into a desolate place. And the people brought him, uh, sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. That's about as far as we're going to go. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we raise our ears and our hearts and our spirits to you this morning with our eyes glued to your word, knowing that when you spoke through your word, you gave us more than just a book, a piece of literature. You breathed from your heart into, into our cold hearts. We pray that as we listen to what you have said, what you continue to say, we ask that the Holy Spirit would activate our hearts to respond, to be set free, to be less burdened by the things uh, around us, the things that the, the world says we should be burdened by, and to step into the freedom that Christ has called us to step into. We pray that our lives would be changed, not because of a guy on stage, not because of a, a, an organization of, of church stuff, but because of the living breathing, powerful word of the living God. May you speak into our hearts today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have a question. How many of you have been stressed out at least once in this past week? <laughs> right? How many of you, you're like, You've been stressed out just today, and today hasn't even gotten started yet. You don't have to raise your hand, but you are, because the struggle is real. How many of you would describe your lifestyle as stressful? It's maybe not what you want to describe it, but that's the reality of it. Your life is full of stress and perhaps even anxiety to you. whether it's now, whether it's this past week, or whether it's just your life in general, uh, I've got good news and bad news, and they're both the same. One, you're not alone. (laughs) Uh, Pew uh, Gallup, uh, about six months ago, put out this study. They said about eight in 10 Americans is stressed out. Eight in 10 Americans. Uh, 80% of this building represented are stressed out. Now, I want to carefully delineate between good stress and bad stress. Did you know there's a difference? Uh, we were made to experience good stress, and there's actually some technical words for this. Good stress is called eustress. Bad stress, more accurately, is called distress. Go figure. But good stress is actually that, re- that chemical, biological reaction of the body to get you ready for a situation or an environment that is either dangerous or challenging. It's a good thing. That's when your brain, in all of its complexity, in all of its uh, uh, ways of moving and, and, and coming to decisions and being methodical and thinking through things, almost basically shuts down and focuses all of its energy on a smaller part of the brain, so, uh, which is like the, 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 what one person called it, the bird brain. It's the part that functions for fight or flight. It's when you are in danger or when you are presented with a challenge Uh, which could be anything. It could be like a work project. It could be a final uh, paper that you have due like tomorrow morning or something. Uh, It's that that moment where your brain goes into a fight or flight mode so that you can make quick decisions on the fly. Good stress. Beautiful how our our bodies have been made. 
Then there's bad stress. Distress. Distress usually has to do not with mere challenges, not even dangerous environments or situations, usually things that are outside of the realm of our control. And here's one of the key differences between good stress and bad stress. Good stress, you could do something about your situation. That's why you're experiencing good stress, to do something. And it usually dissipates. It usually dissipates. I'm experiencing bad stress right now. It usually dissipates when that challenge or situation is gone. It's there just for the moment that you need it. Bad stress tends to, be, uh, tends to have to do with things that are outside of your control, and it usually does not leave you. It's there when you go to bed at night. It's there when you wake up in the morning. It's there throughout the week. It's this perpetual state of anxiety. That bad stress is what I'm talking about today. A survey done by the American Psychological Association found that a majority of Americans experience the bad stress. We live this way. Why? Some of you, you might know why. You might be able to point to finances. You might be able to point to relationships. You might be able to point to a, a, a variety of things. Maybe your calendar. Maybe your schedule. Uh, and they probably all have to do with one another. Let's put it this way. Why do we feel stressed? Why do we feel out of control? Uh, one doctor, uh, Dr. Susan Coven, who practices internal medicine at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, wrote this. Maybe you resonate with this. She said, in the past few years, I've observed an epidemic of sorts. Patient after patient suffering from the same condition." The symptoms of this condition include fatigue, irritability, insomnia, anxiety, headaches, heartburn, bowel disturbances, back pain, and weight gain. There are no blood tests or x-rays diagnostic of this condition, and yet it's easy to recognize. The condition is excessive busyness, or what I like to call a lack of margin. We've spoken about this before. We spoke about this in the Messy Church series on emotional and spiritual health. What most people are stressed out about has to do with a lack of control. And when it boils down to it, we are, in control, uh, we are less in control of our lives, specifically our time, than anything else. The fact is, for a lot of people, and maybe you can resonate with us, life is just too busy. We might, we might have more than we can possibly dare to dream to use. We might have money, we might have stuff, we might have friends, we might have status, we might have popularity, but life is too busy and we're stressed. And we see this tension early on in the Gospel of Luke, thousands of years ago, before we were ever in on the scene. We see this start to take place in the life of Jesus. Things were going great we're opening in on, on Luke chapter 4. Things are going great. He just gave everybody his mission statement. He's like, I, I'm the person who came to change the world. I'm going to change the world. He starts healing people. He starts casting out demons. He's doing things that nobody in that time was doing. He's doing it. And crowds are starting to form around him. They're starting to find him uh, uh, to be maybe promising. And they're gathering around him. His popularity is starting to pick up. This is the moment that anybody in this room would say, like, all right, you need to capitalize off of this, buddy. 
You need to like put together a PR team. You need to double your hours. You need to get more busy. You need to stay on top of it. This is, you gotta keep this momentum going. And Jesus does what few people in the world would ever do. Look at this line. Look at the first line. And when it was day, after all of this, thi- all of this stuff starts to take place, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. Well, Jesus That's not how you get successful. That's not the pathway to happiness. I'm sure so many people would respond in that way. As things are starting to stir, Jesus leaves. Now, this is not an isolated verse. Read the Gospel of uh, of Luke and watch how many times Jesus leaves. Not to get more busy, but to be with his Father, to pray, to take a nap, to walk by the Sea of Galilee. He's always leaving in order to find a place of solitude or to pray or to fill up uh, in his relationship to the Father. And I find this interesting. It's not an isolated verse. This type of behavior from Jesus is all over the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels. He's always retreating. I find it interesting because I often admire Jesus' activity. The healing of the sick and the preaching and the teaching and the healings and the demon, uh, you know, exorcisms and the the spreading of freedom, all the stuff that he does. I often admire Jesus' activity, but do we ever uh, notice his non-activity? He is as non-active as the times that he is active, it seems. He's retreating from the busyness of life. He was, and it doesn't mean that he was a hermit. It doesn't mean that he was sick of people and he just locked himself in a room never to come out again. He was present with people better than most people are present with people. It's just that he was never at the mercy of people. He he ministered to the needs of the day. He's the best at it. He was just never enslaved to the needs of the day. Jesus seemed to know something that I need to be reminded of over and over and over. The needs will crush us if we let them. There is no end to needs and urgencies and demands in your life or in my life. And if we were to let them, they will crush you on the spot. The needs will crush us if we let them. Look at verse 42. We see this in the life of Jesus. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. You hear that? Never mind my buddy Cameron over there. He's attending to the needs of the moment. But they're good needs. The people sought Jesus and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. The crowds are now pressing in on Jesus and they're actually threatening to say like, hey, don't go. We need you for this. We need you for that. We need you for this. We need you for that. And you're the Messiah. Aren't you supposed to do all of these things? You're supposed to be there for us all the time, 24 hours a day. When I first uh, started working at Reality, before Reality Santa Barbara was a church, I was working at Reality Carpinteria, and uh, over 10 years ago, when I first started working here, I let the needs crush me. It was uh, fresh on the heels of my becoming born again, or what Christians used to refer to their conversion experience. I found the Lord. I was excited. I got hired as an intern. I started working, and... Uh, it was a good time, 
and I poured myself into it. And I found myself over time working uh, beyond that which I had the capacity to, to, to work. Uh, generally working between 80 and 90 hours a week, on occasion 100 hours a week. And part of it was for good reasons I would be able to point to. Some of it was for zeal. I was really excited about ministry. I was really excited about my job. Uh, Part of it was because I had just gotten born again like a couple years prior. And I was like, I love the Lord. I've lived my entire life for myself. Now I get to live for God. This is awesome. I just want to do this all the time. Part of it was for passion. I loved the things that I, I got to do and I still do. But looking back in retrospect, I'd also see some other unhealthy patterns, like my identity. My identity was, was still wrapped up in what I was able to do. I still longed for people's affirmation, and I was still crushed by their criticism. And so even though there was a zeal, there was a passion, there was a fresh love for God, mixed with that was just some immaturity that I just didn't know. Like, I, I'm, I'm also maybe doing this to make, make this person happy, make that person happy, to appear this way, to not fail, to sense that, that I, I have some significance in my life, that I, I'm worthwhile. And even though in the beginning I was able to do it for a long time, little by little that, that caught up with me, and it wasn't just the hours, it was the emotional space in my life. It was available for everyone and everything. I couldn't say no to people. It was, uh, it was once said that if you live for people's phrase, uh, praise, you will die by their criticism. And even though it didn't happen initially, after a few years, it began to slowly die inside. It was also terrible at conflict, so I didn't tell people no, and I didn't tell them uh, what I was going through, so I just kept it inside. And so I would do the right, I would do these things, I would work, I would be there for every possible urgent need, everything that people told me was important that I needed to be at. And inside, I would start to get bummed, that bummedness would turn into sadness, that would turn into uh, resentment, eventually it would turn into bitterness until I started getting sick inside. My family started to feel the brunt of my long hours and my uh, inability to create boundaries. Uh, Even when I did come home, my mind was still in another place. Uh, My friendships and relationships suffered, and eventually I reached the verge of burnout. And yet I thought, even at that point, it's okay because I'm doing this for God. You know, this is spiritual. We should be doing too much. We should be exerting ourselves to the point of, of, of uh, a lack of health. It's for Jesus. I thought it was spiritual. No one told me in those days that God created human beings with limits. And those limits are God-given. Just look at God. God who is limitless, who is omniscient, who is all-powerful and all-present, uh, all who can do anything established a Sabbath in his work week that he honors. He creates humans in his own image and he, tell, he makes them need to sleep. Ever think about that? We have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to slow down and he calls us into the same Sabbath rest that he himself observes. No one told me, you were created with limits and those limits are actually God-given. I was told, 
live life without limits. Do everything. You have to do everything. The truth is, we can't do everything. And when we do, it begins to crush us. Anyone in this room feel a lack of limits in your life crushing you right now? Saying to yourself, well, I have to be this. I have to do this. I have to show up here. I have to show up there. I have to, I have to, I have to. Driven by what every other stream and current in the world is dictating for you. Are you feeling fatigued yet? I want to point your eyes this morning to Jesus, a man, a God-man, who is driven by something other than the needs and the urgencies and the demands of his day. Jesus was what I like to call call-driven, not need-driven. He was driven by a call, not by every single need that came his way. Uh, One of my buddies walked me through a series of questions that became for me this great spiritual practice or exercise. You should try this sometime. He said, Chris, I want you to write down four things. First, write down all the, th- all the stuff you're doing. Not just in your job, like everything. Just the things that you're doing. Then I want you to write down the things that you must do. What are the things you must do? Then write down the things that you can uh, have someone else do. And then lastly, things that can wait until another time. You don't have to do them. As I began to write these things down, I saw all of these things that I was doing, some that I didn't need to do, some that somebody else could do, some things that could wait until another time, and the list, uh, the list was huge, and the list of things that I must do, I must, must preach the gospel, I must play with my kids, I must go on dates with my wife, I must go surfing. I must do certain things because God has made me that way. I must have a Sabbath. I must pray. That list was getting very small. What must you do? Look at verse 43. As the crowds were pressing around Jesus, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. But we need you here, Jesus. I must go somewhere else. I must go to other towns. I must preach about the kingdom. I love this because Jesus, the God of the universe, actually gives this crowd of people in Capernaum two of his limits. One, I can't stay in Capernaum. I'm sorry. I got other things to do. And notice, he's not going to the whole world. His ministry would just be around a little lake, another limit. But I've got to go to all these towns around this lake. I can't stay in Capernaum. You'll notice as you read the Gospels that people, uh, there's this this, uh, trajectory that forms in all of the Gospels where people just start, they love Jesus. But you recognize after a while, they love him for particular reasons. They love him because of his healings and his miracles and his uh, miraculous feedings. When Jesus actually wants to teach them about the kingdom of God. And this tension starts to build in a few of the gospels where he actually just calls them out on it. And he's like, you just, well, you just saw the manna from heaven. You just saw my miracles. That's all you care about. But they don't want to hear what he has to say. And so it almost seems like right here he's, he's preventing them 
from ha- like he's preventing himself from being merely a magician with magical medical powers. So that's, I, I've come to do that a little bit, but that's not my main purpose. My main purpose is to talk about the kingdom of God. I'm not going to stay here and be your personal doctor. I've got to go to other places and do other things. I've got to speak about the kingdom, God's rule and reign, the thing I came to do. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do these things. I've got to do them. I love this because it's out of his divine limitations that, he realized, uh, that he's able to realize and experience his grand purpose and calling. And it's going to be the same for you and me as well. We need to embrace our God-given limits so that we can focus on our God-given purpose. The world will not stop telling you what you're supposed to do. We must listen to the no that God is telling us so that we can say amen to the yes that he's giving us. And the truth is, you might not do that, if you, but if you're, not, if you're not driven by a God-given purpose, you will be driven by accident. If you're not driven on purpose, you'll be driven by accident or by accidents, by everything that sweeps down the pipeline your way. Every need, every urgency, every demand, every opinion, you'll be at the mercy of those things and you'll be stressed. But when we save ourselves for the things that God has called us to do, and listen, God has not called you merely to live a busy life. God didn't die on the cross so you could be busy. God came so that you could be set free and so you could be obedient. Obedient and busy aren't always the same thing. And saving yourselves to be obedient to the great things that God is calling you to do entails saying no to other things. And the funny thing is, sometimes, often those things aren't going to be necessarily bad things. We're going to have to say no to a lot of good things. Jesus is saying no to a good thing right now. It's not like Capernaum is saying, hey, Jesus, stay here for a while. We want to offer sacrifices, you know, to Satan, okay? No, that would not be good. No, they're like, hey, st- stick around, heal people, you know? Be with us, shepherd us, pastor us, heal us, transform us. We need you, we need you. That's a good thing. No. How can Jesus say no to good things? I want to argue that it's because Jesus was primarily driven from better things. Jesus was driven not by people's affirmation or by their criticism and disappointment. He was driven by the Father's love. Look at this verse in John chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. You hear what he's saying? The reason I am able to love you is because of the love of the Father that I am experiencing. Everything that Jesus does flows from his affirmation and love straight from the Father. He's not loving people in order to receive love from them. He doesn't need to. He drinks deeply from the Father's love. That means he's free to love people. That means he's also free to go up onto a mountain and not do anything. 
He didn't need validation from other people because he got it all from his father. You remember that scene? I just want to read, you, uh, read that to you in Mark chapter 1, verse 11. A voice came from heaven and the father spoke, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. How's that for a start of a life well spent? Before he did anything, God breaks through the, breaks through the sky and says, Hey, son, Jesus, my son, you haven't even done anything yet. I'm stoked on you. What would that do to your life? What would that do to your life if God opened up the skylight of heaven and said, you know what? You ain't done nothing yet. I'm delighted in you. I'm delighted in you today, whether you make, whether you make good choices or bad. Just know that. How much freedom would that open up in your life and in my life if we knew that nothing we did or failed to do could change God's tremendous delight in his sons and daughters? Would that open up more freedom in you? Would that free you from wanting validation from other people? Would that free you from being enslaved to other people's criticisms, to the challenges, to the needs, to, uh, to the demands of life? If God, the God of the universe, was like, I'm stoked on you. I'm going to bed. Do whatever you want. For Jesus, it meant he was free to do only what the Father wished. He said in John 5, 19, the Son uh, can do nothing of his own accord. He only does what, the, what he sees the Father doing. He's just so close to the Father's heart. He lives by the Father's heart. And that's all that matters. What incredible freedom. He was not swayed by endless demands. And what this meant was that he, was, he ended up being free to be completely present with the people that he was with. He wasn't giving them fatigue. He wasn't pouring out of burnout. He wasn't giving them his leftovers. The people that he was with, the people that he was talking to, he gave them out of an overflow of the Father's love. And he was constantly going back to that mountain. It is a lie in Christian circles and I would, I would say in every circle in general that we should have no limits. It's a rallying cry, right? We've heard it before. Push the envelope. Surpass limits. There's no limits. You can do anything. Any of you have been told that by your mom or dad when you were like a little kid? You could be anything that you want to be. Like, well, I want to be in the NBA. But I'm five foot five, you know. <laughs> well... Anything is possible. Not true. I'm 37 and I want to be in the NBA. My mom said it's possible. <laughs> I'm so dumb sometimes. You can do anything. You have to do everything. As a Christian, you should do everything. You should be there for everything. You should be available for everything. You should always say yes to everything you, that comes your way. That is not true. If you look at the life of Jesus, you'd have to say that sometimes the most spiritual thing a person can do is say no. I think Christians in Santa Barbara should learn to say no more. Because every time you say no to something that's urgent, you're able to say yes to something that's important. 
How many of our lives are filled with urgent things that are not important? One of the things that is important that we're able to say yes to is what I like to call margin. You know what margin is, right? Margin uh, refers to the, the empty space between the edges of the book and the text. Uh, so I have like a little bit of margin right here in my Bible, and then up top I have a, like a half inch of margin. Uh, and it's a design thing. Now, imagine if you had a book and there was no margin. If the text was just, you know, the, the, uh, the production company just cut off uh, the bleed right next to the text so there was no margin. The text just came up all the way next to the edge. Imagine what it would be to read a book like that. It would feel, uh, it would be really difficult to read. Aesthetically and visually, you would feel rushed. You, it would be difficult to read. Perhaps that's what some of our lives are like this morning. They feel rushed and difficult because we're lacking margin, because we've allowed the world to dictate how we're supposed to live, and our lives are filled with stuff. Some of it's important, some of it's just not. Now, there are some caveats that I want to be fair to in case some of these people are here. These are examples, these are caveats to what I'm talking about. These do not count. These are exceptional. Uh, One of them is the economically impoverished, the poor of this world. That's a different story altogether. If you're impoverished, if you're homeless, if you're poor, you don't have the privilege of being able to say, I'm going to enjoy margin, because the entire world is structured against that. Uh, for that. For that group, there are actually systematic injustices, working against people, robbing them, making everything in their life a crisis. And so that's a, another conversation in itself. Maybe we'll talk about that, but can't, can't just say, hey, just stop being busy. The second thing is the cost of living. Santa Barbara. Some of you might be like, I would love nothing more than just to have some time to pray or to spend time with my spouse or to take a nap or to just unwind. Uh, But the truth is, like, it's expensive. Groceries are expensive. Houses are expensive. Stuff is expensive. Breathing is expensive. And so most of my time is spent living to pay for those expenses. I have three jobs. I have no time to do anything. I don't have time to spend with God. I don't have time to spend with people who care about me. It's a cost of living. And that's true. We can't all move to like Wyoming, you know, and just sit around in a hammock or whatever people in Wyoming do. I don't know if that's what they do. That would be awesome though. Santa Barbara, that's true. California in general. But if that's you, I want to I want to invite you to reframe your question a little bit. Instead of saying, here are the things that I can't do. And it might be 95% of your time is spent doing things you can't change. Instead of saying, here are the things I cannot do that I can't control. What can you do? How can you steward what you can control? The 5%. For you, you might be like, single mom, three jobs, barely making it, I have no time, when I have time, I pass out in utter fatigue. Okay, so for you, maybe it's 30 seconds. 
right as your head is about to hit the pillow. God can do extraordinary things with your 30 seconds. If you were, instead of giving it to the anxieties of life, handing it to God, God can do incredible things in your 30 seconds. What would it look like if just in those 30 seconds you were like, you know what, instead of fretting, instead of thinking about my to-do list, instead of getting tied up in all of this stuff, I'm just going to calm down and be with Jesus who loves me no matter what. I'm just going to give him my 30 seconds as an offering of my trust in him. You could start there. Third caveat, emergencies, crises. Sometimes these happen, and we just got to deal with them. You know, uh, my family, we practice a Sabbath uh, from Friday night to Saturday night. But if uh, my mom is in the hospital, I'm not going to be like, sorry, mom, Sabbath. Margin. (laughs) If I'm walking in a crosswalk and you trip and fall and you can't get up, I'm not going to be like, sorry, (laughs) margin. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> no, there's things like that. There's crises, crises, there's emergencies, and those are moments where we need to get over ourselves, surrender our time, and be flexible. But I want to address something else. Even though there are those moments, we've got to deal with them when they come, I want to talk about how sometimes our life feels like a series of crises, but they're not really. We just make them. Sometimes we're busy because we're simply driven by unhealthy patterns and something desperately needs to change. In other cases, we've chosen a lifestyle of busyness. We've chosen a standard of living that we have to have. We've chosen a way of life that we have to have and now we're living in a set of situations and an environment that we feel like we can't change, but we've chosen that and it's killing us little by little. Maybe we've lost all sense of purpose. Maybe we look at Jesus and we're like, I don't have that. I don't have a sense of purpose. I'm just going day by day, paycheck to paycheck. Or maybe our sense of purpose really is just to be liked, to be accepted, to feel successful, to feel like we're not failures, to feel some sense of significance or worth. And so we work from a place uh, of longing for work, uh, for worth. And I again want to show you Jesus. Life in Christ gives us a new purpose, if that's where you're working from. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he opened up a door of union with him. You remember my question, what would it be like if God, who said to his son, you are beloved, I'm delighting in you, and you haven't even started yet, I just love you. I just love you. What if he broke through the sky and said that to you and me? You know what happens when you, by faith, by grace, are in Christ? All the things that Jesus has in his Father become yours. I want to I read to you one of the most mind-blowing prayers in the Bible. This is actually in John chapter 17. This is Jesus' famous prayer. And I'm just going to read a few uh, verses from this. This is verses 21 through 23. And he says this. He's praying for uh, his disciples. He's praying for his church. And then he switches and he starts praying for everybody, you know, all people. 
And he says in verse 20, I do not ask all of these things for my people only, but also those who will believe in me through your word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's praying for union. He's not praying, like Christianity isn't just like, hey, let's get our rear ends in a seat in a church sometime, you know, and uh, just be busy. Let's just be busy Christians and show up at church. Christianity is union with the Father through Christ. Jesus is praying that. I want them to become one with my life. I want them to experience my freedom, my joy, my sense of fulfillment, my sense of purpose, all of those things that they were created for in my image. And he keeps going. Listen to this. Verse 22. That the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Listen to this. And loved them even as you loved me. When we're in Christ, God does break through the heavens to say, you too are my beloved. Before you have done anything right or wrong, simply by being in Christ, you are accepted, you are loved, you are adopted, you are approved, you are liked. Think about that. God likes you. And there is nothing you can do to change that. What would that do to the way that you live your life tomorrow or even today for that matter? We are in Christ, and in Christ, we are in his love. This is the part of the gospel. This is what he said he was going to do in chapter 4. I have come to preach good news to the poor and to uh, spread liberty to the captives. Jesus didn't come to make you busy as though Christianity was simply working off a debt, you know? Like, okay, God loves me, I better earn it. But nor, is, nor did he come to make you lazy. It's not the other end of the spectrum either. God calls us to engage the faith. We still work. We just work from a different place now. We don't have to work for love. We can work from a place of love. We don't have to work for people's affirmation. We can work from a place of affirmation a place that no other human being can possibly replicate, the, the love of our Father. And it's the best place to work. I love this example by the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about the resurrection. He's like, Jesus rose from the dead and it changes everything. And then he starts talking about how people saw him. Peter saw him, the Apostle saw him, they were awesome. And then finally, me, I saw Jesus. And then he's, he, he speaks about himself in this way. He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I don't even deserve to be an apostle. And then in verse 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of the apostles. (laughs) Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You know what Paul is saying? It's like, I don't deserve to be here, but God brought me here by grace. Therefore, I'm going to work harder than anybody else that came before me. And that work in Paul is overflowing out of a sense of his love, out of a sense of God's love for him. He's, wor- he's like, Peter, you heard that guy, Peter? Pfft. 
I'm going to outwork that guy because God loves me and I don't deserve this. It's working from a place of grace, love, and acceptance. And this is where we can go about our business as well. Whether, you, uh, whether it's your work, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your family, whether it's a project, whether it's problems, whether it's things you're going for, uh, through, you can work out of a sense of a deep reservoir of God's love for you. But it requires that we slow down to be with him. And we can't slow down if we have no limits. I'm going to ask Cody to come out here with the rest of the team. And I just want to give you a, a question to ask yourself. We often see uh, Jesus and his activity, but do you ever notice his non-activity? That that was just as important in the life of Jesus as his activities were. He slowed down, he had limits, he stopped, he rested, he entered into the pre- his presence with the Father. I want to ask you a couple questions. One, what in your life is crushing you that you just don't need to carry around any longer? It might be time. It might be hours spent, but it could also be emotional. It could be an emotional burden, too. It could be an obligation. It could be pressure. It could be expectations. It could be a whole list of things. What out there? is crushing you that you simply do not need to carry any longer. I want to invite you in the name of Jesus Christ who died on the cross, not only for your sins, but also for your freedom. That if God is revealing that thing to you in your life, let this be the day that you let that burden drop. You might have a hundred burdens. Start with this one. It might just be a small one. Start with a small one. Embracing your limits starts maybe for some of us with recognizing, you know, the biggest limit of all. That we suppose ourselves to have our lives together. And I want you to let go of that disillusionment as well. Recognize that we cannot possibly control our lives, that we are in need of intervention, turn to Christ, receive of his graceful love towards you, and begin little by little living out of that place. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray for us this morning and ask uh, that as we sing together and as we pray together, you would just begin to highlight things in our lives that are pushing us down, that are, not, that are not your will for us. Maybe we need help with that. Maybe you need to open our eyes. Or maybe we, our eyes are open, we just feel like we can't do anything about it. And we ask that the King of Glory would step into our mess and begin to do for us what we can't possibly do for ourselves. And we do ask that that would start at the most basic level. That men, women... Adults, children in this place would begin to see our, com- our, our complete and tremendous need for a Savior to step in to our lives and to our mess and to our brokenness. And may we learn little by little to surrender our control of our life to the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
And in so doing, may we come to find truthfully and honestly that your yoke, your way of doing things, your expectations of us are truly easy and light. And may we come and find rest in you in our time of need. In Jesus' name, amen.